So I think we've often seen in the news or heard stories of the incredibly wealthy people who astonishingly go bankrupt, right? We see it with movie stars and athletes and lottery winners. And I remember as a kid, I would hear these stories and think, how could somebody with that much money ever run out of money? Uh, and so um, I-, I read some stories about this this week, and um, one is of a-, a favorite actor of mine. I know this isn't like a classy actor, um, but I'm a big fan of Nick Cage. Uh, so I think we have a picture of Nicolas Cage in case you don't know who Nicolas Cage is. Um, so Nick Cage is, uh, you know, not a, a thespian of great um, caliber, but he's a fun actor. Um, my kids love Nick Cage because he was in National Treasure, which is both action movie plus American history. So it's like the sweet spot for my family. Uh, Nick Cage is Hollywood royalty. His, I think he's the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, one of the most famous directors maybe of all time. And uh, he was pretty successful. So uh, I think uh, after about 10 years in his career, between 96 and 2011, he made something like $150 million, which is decent. I mean, that's, you know, that's a decent income. Uh, yet somehow at the end of that era, um, around 2009, 2010, um, he was on the verge of bankruptcy. He didn't actually go bankrupt, but he got really, really close. Uh, And so I was fascinated at how in the world you make $150 million and then run out of money. And now I'm using Nick Cage because he's kind of a quirky guy, okay? Let me tell you a few things that he bought in that window of time just to give you a sense of maybe how this might have happened. Uh, So maybe one of his more reasonable purchases is that he did buy a Gulfstream jet. But everybody needs a Gulfstream jet when you got $150 million. That makes sense. He bought a lot of properties, um, some nice houses. I think he bought a 26-acre estate in Rhode Island that was at the time the most expensive real estate sale in that state. Uh, He bought a haunted mansion in New Orleans, a haunted mansion in New Orleans, and I think most famously, uh, an island. He bought an island in the Bahamas or somewhere in the Caribbean. Um, He also uh, liked cars. He bought a bunch of expensive cars. Um, The most memorable of those was a Lamborghini that he purchased for $450,000. It was previously owned by the Shah of Iran. Kind of makes sense. Got to have one of those. Uh, And then um, he really liked exotic animals. So uh, among other things, he owned uh, two albino king cobra snakes, a crocodile, and a shark. And then at some point he decided it would be really helpful if he had a 67 million year old uh, dinosaur skull. So about one of those and about $1.6 million of comic books. Um, So you maybe get a little bit of a sense, right, of if if, uh, you were Nick Cage, how you might start running out of money. Um, and, and it's fascinating to me to think about um, how that happens, right? How you have all this wealth and then how you sort of fritter it away um, in, a, in a carefree sort of I'm what matters sort of life. And, and I want to um, just for a moment compare, and I, Nick Cage is probably a great guy, so don't, don't hate on Nick Cage. Um, but I want to compare that a little bit to a friend of mine. Um, I have a friend uh, uh, from out of state who... Uh, well, I don't know how much money he has, but I'm going to say he's either got hundreds of millions or maybe a billion. He's got a lot of money. And the reason I don't know exactly how much money he has is because he doesn't really flaunt it. Um, he has a really nice house, but not a private island. 
Uh, and he has a pretty nice car, but he didn't buy it from a former dictator of a Middle Eastern country. And to the best of my knowledge, he has no dinosaur skulls or comic books. Um, in fact, the only reason that I know um, that he has um, significant money is because I have seen how privately he has been incredibly generous in his life. Uh, and he doesn't usually let people know what he's doing, but I've had the privilege of being on the inside, and I've seen him um, bless people and churches and organizations in extraordinary ways. And other than that, he seems like a pretty normal guy, right? I mean, he, he sits in a regular pew in his church every Sunday, and he goes to committee meetings, and, and he, I think he's a pretty good friends with my dad, uh, and he loves his kids and his family and Jesus. And I think about him often when I hear about stories like Nick Cage, right? Because he's made more money than Nick Cage could ever dream of. Um, but he's richer than Nick, not because of what he has, but because of what he gives. And, and I wonder if that might be a better metric for us as we try to assess wealth and value in our lives, which I think sometimes we confuse, right? That maybe the value of our life isn't about what we have. Maybe it's about what we give. Not our ability to live carefree and selfishly, um, but selflessly and committed. And you can take Nick off. Um, so uh, I want to talk about another rich man, a guy named Zacchaeus this morning. Zacchaeus is a really interesting figure in Scripture for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, we've talked many times about what it means to be a tax collector and the Jewish people in the Roman Empire. So just to briefly remind you, uh, he would have been expected to produce a certain amount of income for his superiors in Rome. Um, but most tax collectors made their money by, by getting more than that, right? So if I have to collect $50 a head, I'm going to collect $60 a head. I give $50 a head to Rome, and I keep $10 a head for myself, right? Pretty straightforward. Um, so tax collectors were in their day seen both as traitors and also as thieves, right? Because they're taking more than they're supposed to take, and they're doing it for the enemy, the, the oppressor. But we're told that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. So that's interesting. Uh, there's something like a pyramid scheme of tax collection in the Roman Empire. Think Mary Kay for villains, okay? So um, not only do you collect taxes from your neighbors, but you collect taxes from all of your subordinate tax collectors, right? So he is on the top of a pyramid collecting all this income from all these different collect tax collectors throughout maybe the city, maybe the region. We don't know how chief he is, right? Um, so he's loaded, right? That's what we take away from this. And, and we're told in Scripture he's rich. Um, and and um, we can make our own conjectures, but I think the implication is that he gets rich the wrong way. Um, but then we get this incredible interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And I want to think about three things that Zacchaeus does that I think are really essential for his transformation and potentially for ours as we think about what it means to move from a carefree to a committed life in this area of, uh, of our spiritual walk with God. Uh, the, we're going to get to the first thing he does last, okay? But the second thing he does um, is he evaluates his investments with Jesus standing in his home. This is really an interesting moment. Jesus says, I got to come, I got to stay at your house today. And it's when Jesus gets in his home and in his life that Zacchaeus starts reevaluating what wealthy looks like, what has value for him. 
And I love this idea that for us in our lives, it's not Jesus at a distance, but Jesus up close that helps us reflect on who we are, who we want to be, what matters to us, what has value for us. Uh, And it's when we get close to Jesus that we start measuring um, our investments, our lives, our time, our treasure in a different way. What does it mean for Jesus to get into our homes? Every time that I um, read the story of Zacchaeus, I remember an experience I had, I guess it was nine years ago now, with a guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, In fact, I only know one guy named Zacchaeus, and this particular gentleman is a healthcare worker at the Holy Family Center um, at the Nazareth Hospital in Kenya. And Zacchaeus was um, a, a, a gentleman I got to work with some while I was on an experience sort of partnering with the, the hospital my former church worked with. And so, among other things, Zacchaeus's job was to go into the homes of the HIV AIDS patients that our hospital cared for and to, to see how they were doing, to check on their medications, to see what, how their health was going. They were like home health visits. And I had the great privilege one day of going with Zacchaeus to do home health visits to some of the HIV AIDS clinic uh, patients in that region of um, the Kawaida neighborhood in Kenya. So three families we saw that day, we went into their homes, and every one of those, um, the disease of HIV AIDS was actually their least pressing concern. The first client we met was a lady named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was not able to afford her hypertension medication, which was $10 a month. And so when we got there and and took her vitals, her blood pressure was at 220 over 120, um, which is life-threatening. So we had a conversation with Elizabeth about what that meant, and we gave her money for bus fare, and we begged her uh, to leave her children with her, her sister and to get on the bus and go to our hospital. So we left Elizabeth's home, and we went to another home um, where the couple were named Peter and Lois. And Peter and Lois had um, five children. We only met two of them. Um, Peter and Lois are both HIV AIDS positive, um, and as is their three-year-old son, Martin. He was three back in 2011. Um, As was their 14... I'm sorry. No, they also had a 14-month-old baby, Henry, who was not HIV AIDS positive yet, unfortunately, you can get a false negative up to 18 months of age. So we weren't sure whether he would have it or not. Uh, At that time, Peter was unemployed and was unable to provide food for Henry and Martin and Lois and their three other children. And they were two months behind on their rent for their home. And by the way, their home um, was a one-room dirt floor hovel with a corrugated tin roof. We left Peter and Lois' home, and we visited a woman named Esther. Esther was a single mom of four. Uh, She, um, like Peter and Lois, lived in a one-room home. Um, Her husband left her when he found out that she was HIV positive and he was not. And in her one-room home, she has no bed, so she had constant health issues from sleeping on the floor every night. And like Peter and Lois, um, that night she had no food to feed her four children. I got to tell you, I left those homes and I came back to my nice dorm room at the hospital. And then a few days later, I came back to my really nice home in Virginia. 
And I thought, boy, when I met Peter and Lois and Elizabeth and Esther, it felt like um, I was getting up close to Jesus. It felt like those are the sort of homes Jesus would be visiting. It, it felt like I began to assess, boy, what matters to me is different now. And it was one thing to know that there were people in the world struggling with issues that I couldn't imagine, and quite another thing to have their children sit on my lap. And Jesus kind of wrecked my life a little bit. Uh, and he said, no, nah, you can't keep valuing what you valued and doing what you've been doing. Uh, you've got you to gotta reorient yourself to me because now I'm no longer far away. Now I'm right up in your face. I'm right up in your home. And I wonder what happens for us or what happens for you um, when Jesus comes into your home, right? In, in all the different ways that might look like. It doesn't require you to go to Kenya and, and, and visit a, a, a person uh, on a dirt floor in order to experience Christ coming into your home. When you begin to, to know the Savior and know what He loves and who He loves, how can that not change how you live and what you value and where you choose to invest. So, of course, Zacchaeus says, wow, Jesus, now that I get it, right? Now that I see you, now that you're, you're not just this guy out there, but you're in my home, you're in my life, you're in my business, Jesus, uh, I, I'm changing what I do. I'm changing how I live. There are some new non-negotiables in my life. Uh, and I love that after this happens, right, after Zacchaeus encounters Jesus in this intensely personal way and brings him into his home and reevaluates what has value and what has meaning and what has purpose, the next thing he does is he makes a plan. And, and this sounds really basic, but it is so important. He makes a plan. I got to tell you, there are so many times in my life where I've had an encounter with Jesus and I've said, wow, that was really powerful and impactful and meaningful. And, and boy, I hope I remember that for a long time. And then I just went right back to my normal life. Because I didn't make a plan, right? I didn't say, this is what's going to happen because of what Christ has done. But Zacchaeus doesn't do that, right? He makes a plan. And so he says, look, I will give half of my possessions, Lord, to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. By the way, this is a really interesting plan that Zacchaeus makes um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the first is that Jesus repeatedly, in the Gospel of Luke, has talked about giving to the poor. Um, and it, it seems like either they've had this conversation or Zacchaeus knows about Jesus, but, but somehow he, he has come to value what Jesus values. But the, this is also really interesting. He says, I will pay back four times as much if I've defrauded anyone of anything. That's not the normal Old Testament expectation. So the, the Torah does have stipulations for if you have defrauded someone financially. And normally what you're to do is to pay back an extra 20%. Right? So if I defraud you of something of value, I pay you back that in full, and then I owe you an additional 20%. Right? That's the normal expectation in Torah. There is one place where there's a different expectation. It's Exodus 22, verse 1, and it's about uh, sheep and cattle rustling. Right? If you are a cattle rustler or a sheep rustler, if you go into my, my sheep pen and you steal my sheep and you butcher them so that you can't return it, right? then you have to pay me back four sheep. Um, by the way, just as a fun fact in the Bible, um, maybe you remember the story of 
King David meeting with the prophet Nathan after he's um, murdered Uriah and taken Uriah's wife as his own. And the prophet tells a story about a rich man who takes a sheep from a poor man. And David says, um, this man deserves to die for what he's done. He must pay back that amount four times over, right? That's where David's getting it. And, and here Zacchaeus says, you know, I, it's not enough for me to add the 20%. Uh, I want to find the hardest standard I can find. Uh, I feel like a sheep rustler, right? I feel like a cattle rustler. Uh, God, I'm going to go above and beyond to try to make right anything I might have put wrong. I love this moment. I love that Zacchaeus says, God, here's my plan. I, I had a wonderful professor in seminary um, that, well, actually I was taking a class on stewardship and he challenged all of the pastors with two things. He said, first of all, um, please don't ever preach a sermon on stewardship if you're not tithing yourself. Just, just don't. You're a hypocrite and just shut up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Uh, and the second thing he said was, um, you should live off your 80%. I've been thinking about this a lot, I mean, for the last 20 years. He says, you should live off your 80%. He says, 10% of what you have goes to God, and 10% of what you have goes to savings, and you live off your 80%. And I know that doesn't sound complicated. It's pretty simple. But it's been a plan I've been working with for the last 20 years, right? Uh, live off your 80%, 10% to God, 10% to savings, and live off the 80 um, It's been a blessing for me to have that, right? To have that little bit of structure. And then sometimes God comes home and messes it up, right? And I come home from Kenya and I say, honey, <laughs> look at our house, right? Look at the houses I was just in. Um, we got room to give, right? We got room to give. Um, and so, you know, we got to become more rich um, by investing uh, in that HIV AIDS ministry and a child in Kenya. Not more rich like we had more money, right? But we had more value. Uh, we're in a season right now where we're thinking about um, commitment to the church, and that's just one tool among many. But one thing you might consider is where is God calling you to make a commitment uh, to, uh, to make a plan for how to respond to the presence of God in your life? Um, and uh, the way he has blessed you and, and shown up in your personal little bubble. Uh, I, I love that Zacchaeus um, reevaluates his life when Jesus is in the center of his home. And I love that he makes a plan. But the most important part of the story is the first thing Zacchaeus does. And the first thing he does is he seeks after Jesus. And I hope you notice this because I love this part of the story. Uh, Zacchaeus is this guy who is rich and powerful. He's not well liked, but he's rich and he's powerful. And he is trying to see Jesus and he just can't get it done. Right? And, and he, he goes up to the, the crowd and he's too small and they won't make room for him and he can't see. And, and Zacchaeus finally ends up climbing a tree just so he can see Jesus. And climbing a tree is something that like, you know, kids do a lot, but, but rich, powerful tax collectors in Israel don't climb trees to see passing rabbis. And it seems to me that um, if anything else matters in our lives, right, as we want to move from a, a carefree life to one of commitment, um, this has got to be the first thing. We've got to seek out Jesus. It doesn't matter um, what else comes if this isn't where we start. Uh, and, and we've got to have the ability to say um, that nothing's going to get between me and Jesus. I, I want to do life up close with him. And so um, my dignity doesn't matter and my pride doesn't matter. And if I fail on my first or second or third or fourth time to encounter God, I'm going to keep coming back and coming back and seeking out Jesus. 
Because the good news is, while we're looking for him, he's looking for us as well. Uh, I had the privilege yesterday of celebrating the life of Marlis Lilly, a member of our church family who passed away last Sunday. Uh, and as we were celebrating her life, one of her daughters got up and, and shared some stories about her. Uh, and some I, I had, of course, not known that were really moving for me. One of them talked about um, her mom, Marlis, and her dad, Jerry. I knew that Marlis and Jerry had known each other since they were young and had been dating through and after high school. I knew that he went off, he was uh, enlisted during the Korean War, and when he came home from deployment, they got engaged, and when he mustered out, they got married. Um, but I didn't know that even before um, the end of high school, um, Jerry was pretty smitten with Marlis. Jerry was two years older than her, so... Um, he came to know her, I think, because she and one of his sisters were good friends. Um, but what, what Marlis and Jerry's daughter shared was that um, when Jerry was um, two years older than Marlis in school, in different schools, um, he, would, he would sneak out during the day and leave his school in the middle of the school day and then sneak into her school. Now, he's in like, I think he's in 10th grade and she's in 8th grade or something, so he's sneaking into the middle school. And, and go to her PE class when they were doing dance lessons uh, and dance with her um, every day whenever there was dance in PE, which is kind of awesome in so many ways. Kind of weird that the teacher never noticed, but I'm not sure how that worked out. Um, but I love this idea that even then, right, uh, he was so smitten with her uh, that he was seeking her out. I mean, it, at some risk to himself of getting in trouble or whatever else, he just had to be with her. And, and they danced their whole lives. And they danced until after 67 years of marriage, God took her home. And I look back at that and I say, boy, that's the story of Zacchaeus seeking out Christ, right? That's the story of us looking for Jesus willing to pay whatever cost it takes just to be with him so we can get him in our lives, so we can get him in our homes, so we can reorder ourselves around him, so we can make a plan and pay any cost to be a people um, who get to be with Jesus all the time. Generosity in this story doesn't start with Zacchaeus. And it doesn't start with you. It starts with Jesus, right? It starts with the Jesus who says, hey, I have to be in your house today. Uh, God comes to us and he stands in the midst of our life. Um, sometimes it's at the table in our home. Sometimes it's at the gymnasium in our school. Sometimes it's at the crossroads of our commitment. And he makes this pledge to us. And he asks, what will your pledge to me be? Will we live carefree and value what we have? Or will we live committed and value what we can give? When Jesus says, I must be at your house today, what will you say back? Thanks be to him. Amen.